this morning. I was going to be in, in Luke chapter 20, but I went back and I started looking at the end of 19, and I thought, I cannot get past this. So we're going to pick up there. But before I do, let me just give you a little background. Now, some of you probably already know this, and it may be old hat to you, but um, let me just give you a background. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. You know, he's about uh, 33 and a half years old. His ministry has been three and a half years in the making. Started his ministry when he was 30 years old. And it was a requirement for any Jewish man uh, or uh, Israeli uh, man to go up to certain, for three feast days, uh, they had to go up three times a year, and Passover was one of those. So we know that Jesus has already been up. Uh, this is going to be his third time up to Jerusalem, that most of his ministry, you know, I think that when we think about Jesus and his ministry, we think about, you know, a lot of it, you know, we think that it was done in Jerusalem, but it really wasn't. It was done in the northern part of Israel, and uh, this is his third and final trip up to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, the momentum is building. Crowds that are following him are in the thousands, and some have even suggested that in Jerusalem, um, that during Passover, that maybe the, the population may have increased to over a million people. Maybe some think as many as, many as two million people, extra people, besides what already lived in the, in the city, what was the population of the city. It was just, you know, it's kind of like Santa Fe on you know, Indian market, fiestas, you know, just people just kind of flock to the city. Um, but just in a greater number. And so, um, so Jesus, I, I want you to think about this for a second because I want you to get this in your mind. That we celebrate uh, on what we celebrate Easter Sunday, but what do we celebrate the week before Easter Sunday? Palm Sunday. Okay, all right. Um, so we celebrate Palm Sunday and then one week later, we celebrate Easter Sunday. And so Jesus said that he was going to give the religious leaders a sign. He said, there's only one sign that I'm going to give you. And what was that sign? The sign of Jonah. And what was the sign of Jonah? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so should the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? Okay, so... From Easter Sunday, or from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday is one week, right? And if Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, what's that leave? Four days, right? At least four days. All right, with me? Everybody with me? All right, I hope you are. Because this is important. It's important for us to track this. Now listen to this. Now we know that Jesus is our, he was our Passover lamb, right? He was the, the lamb of God, the sinless lamb of God. We're going to cover some of these scriptures in just a moment. But I want you to get a handle on this because I think it's really important. Exodus chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke unto Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, listen to this, On the tenth of every month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, let him and his neighbors next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from, the sheep, from sheep or goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. Okay, you take it on the 10th day, 
but you keep it until the 14th day. And so if we take our lamb, you know, we know that the days, uh, their days were the evening and the morning was the first day, right? And so if we take it on the evening of the 10th day, and so the evening of the 10th day to the 11th day is one day, the 11th to the 12th, the 12th to the 13th, and the 13th to the 14th is four days, right? And so you keep the lamb locked up for four days. What are you doing with the lamb while he's locked up? You're inspecting the lamb. You're making sure that this lamb does not have a spot or a blemish, you're examining the lamb every day, you're looking at it, looking at it closely, making sure that your lamb without, is without spot or blemish. You keep it to the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight in that, at that evening. So you examine, you're examining the lamb for, for this four-day period. It's exactly the same amount of time that Jesus was being examined in uh, Jerusalem when he went up to, uh, to Jerusalem. Let's pick up with the scripture out of Luke. After this, Jesus said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is his last time. He's entering into the city for his, uh, for his final time. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, both of these are small little villages that were just a couple of miles from Jerusalem, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. And those that were sent ahead went and found it just as, he, they, as was told them. And they were, as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes up or down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, if even you, had known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden, now it is hidden from your eyes, and the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you, encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, we know that that, uh, that word was fulfilled in 70 AD um, when the Roman general Titus came in, encircled Jerusalem, tore down the walls. Uh, millions of people were, were killed during that time, and the remnant was scattered to the four corners of the earth, uh, the temple was destroyed, and uh, it has been destroyed since that day. And it has been the heart of Israel, the heart of the Jew, to rebuild that temple, but it just has not been permitted by God. And so then we read on in verse 45, it says that he entered into the temple area, and he began driving out those that were selling. And it was written, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, 
But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find a way to do it because the people hung on his words. And what that simply means is, and you'll remember that Jesus was arrested at night, his trial was at night, um, but during the day when, I mean, these uh, literally hundreds and thousands of people were hanging, clinging to every word that he said, and it says, we'll read in other places where the religious leaders feared the people, and they didn't want to take him during the day because they feared the people, afraid that they themselves might be stoned because the people were clinging to Jesus. And so a couple of things that I want to just kind of point out here as we uh, look at this passage of Scripture. It says that Jesus entered into the temple and he began to drive out those that were selling. Now we read that in John's Gospel, but we read it early in John's Gospel, I think in John chapter 1 or chapter 2, uh, John points it out. He did this. This was the second time that Jesus did it. Now, we're, we're talking about Jesus is really down to the last four days of his life in, in Jerusalem, teaching daily in the temple. But when he goes in, he finds the money changers there and those that, uh, that sold animals. And, and this is how this would happen. If you were traveling for, you know, you, you might be living, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70, 100 miles from Jerusalem, and it may be too far for you to carry your sacrifice up. Some people would do it. They would take their little goat or their little lamb. They'd take that up as their sacrifice. But if you felt like it was too far, there were those that you could buy goats and lambs from as you, you know, came into this area. And it began, be, became a money-making um, um, process for the religious leaders of those days. And uh, what would happen is a lot of times, because of their corruption, you know, they had, you would come up because the currency of the day was the, the Roman coin. Remember, Jesus said, show me a coin whose uh, subscription is on there. They said Caesar. So we understand that typically the Jews of those days would use the Roman money. But in the temple area, that money was uh, considered desecrated money. It was considered uh, ungodly money. So the Jews had their own currency. And if you wanted to exchange, if you wanted to buy in the temple area, you would take the Roman coin and you trade it in for the Jewish currency. And there was always a little price that you had to pay so that they were skimming a little bit off the top from that. And then the religious leaders, as I said, you know, if you came in with a, a lamb that you had brought from, you know, how, no, how many, who knows how many miles away that you brought your lamb, you know, after this group of priests would look at it, typically... Guess what? They would find a little problem with your lamb. And, uh, but they would say, not to worry, just take it over to this little group over here, and you can trade your lamb in on another lamb without spot or blemish and add a little bit of currency with that, and, uh, you know, you're here, you're, you're ready for the sacrifice. And then if you watched over there long enough, that lamb that you just traded in would be sold to somebody else as a lamb that was without spot or blemish later on. And so, thus, they made their money. And Jesus is upset with that. And so he starts kicking over the tables and the chairs and the money changers and driving them out and saying, you know, you're corrupt. Look what you're doing. You've made my father's house. There's supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers and thieves. And he's talking to the religious leaders of, of that time, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, uh, but daily he's teaching in the temple and uh, the people are just hanging on to every word. And we know that this is that four-day period. And as he's teaching in the temple, let me just go through a couple of things. Uh, 
you know, uh, well, uh, let me just kind of set the, set the foundation for this because, first of all, we know that John the Baptist, when he looked at Jesus, he said, John the Baptist, it says, and this is in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, John, speaking of John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says that you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed to, down to you from your forefathers. But it was the, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so Peter is uh, establishing here, as John has established, that Jesus is this perfect lamb of God without spot or without defect. And so he's there for four days teaching, and he's teaching before the scripture says the scribes and the Pharisees and the, uh, the rulers of Israel. That's talking about the entire Sanhedrin, that 70-member council. He's there before everyone, and he's teaching. And during that last four days of his ministry, they come up, and they're constantly trying to trap him. Let me show you a couple of examples. Luke chapter 20, verse 26. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answers, and they became silent. This is when he says, you know, when they said, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? And he says, give me a coin. And so they weren't able to trap him in that. And then we see that uh, some of the Sadducees that didn't believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in angels or spirits, uh, they just believed that this is your life, you live your life and you die and that's, that's it, it's over with. Uh, but it says they, they came and tried to trap him with the question, you know, that, that the man uh, uh, married a woman and he died and his brother in turn married the same woman. Seven men had her. And then in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says that you, uh, you err in uh, your understanding of the scripture. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, God is not the God of the dead, but he's the, the God of the living. And he says that he announces himself and proclaims himself to be the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and of Jacob, telling that to Moses at the burning bush. And then we see that the chief priests and the, soul, the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So he's being examined in his teaching. This is the Passover lamb, this, this spotless lamb of God without defect is being examined for these four days by the chief priests, by the religious leaders, by the scribes and by the Pharisees. And it says, and they did not find any false witnesses. Or they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. And then we read in Luke chapter 23, though the whole assembly arose and led him off to Pilate, and they begin to accuse him, saying, we have found this man uh, guilty of subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesars and claims that, uh, to be Christ as a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, say uh, Jesus replied. And Pilate announced to the chief priest and to the crowd, listen to this, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And then we read later on in John's Gospel, John 19, 6, that Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. And so before the religious leaders, before the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests, 
He was innocent. He was a lamb without spot and without blemish. And so as I, as I begin to consider this, there were you know, several points that kind of jumped out at me. And I want you to consider these points as well. There may be more that, you know, maybe Scripture spoke to you in a different way. But number one, the first thing that I see in this is that Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, had been tried and he had been tested. Isaiah chapter 28 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And then we read again from Peter, Now to uh, you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. And so, number one, I see that Jesus has been tried and tested. He has been found without like a lamb without spot or blemish. He was examined for four days, just like the lamb in the book of Exodus, examined for four days, and he was found to be without spot or blemish. I just need to ask you this morning, have you considered Jesus? Have you examined him? Because I tell you that if you do examine him, you will find him to be a tried stone, a tried and true cornerstone. The second thing, the second point that jumps out at me is that he is full of mercy. I want you to think about and consider this for a moment. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. You know, think about this for a second. His disciples and that crowd that's going with him are laying the, uh, the palm branches down and the boughs down, laying the clothing in the street, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Thinking that Jesus is going to go up and take his place to be the next king of Israel. But Jesus had something different in mind. He wasn't going up to be the next king of Israel. He wasn't going up to overthrow the Roman government. He was going up, and in his mind, he's going up, and he sees the cross before him every step of the way, every step that he takes. Every day that he is daily teaching in the temple, he sees the cross before him knowing that it's just a matter of time. It's just down to days and hours and minutes before he will be arrested and be found guilty by a false jury and nailed to a cross. Knowing all of that, he is daily teaching the uh, people in the temple. And as he approaches Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He's full of mercy. This God that we serve, this shepherd this sheep, this lamb of God that we serve is full of mercy. The scripture says, Now therefore says the Lord, Turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind? I want to tell you, listen to this. Hear these words carefully. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. You know, the scripture tells us that God does not delight 
in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly or the wicked. And then we see Peter. And, and, and this just kind of like, you know, is the icing on the cake, I think, in this message. Because he is full of mercy. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is speaking to a crowd of people. And this is the same group of people that just some almost 40 days earlier had crucified Jesus. These are the ones that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. This is the same group of people that were encouraging the Roman guards and, and, and the religious leaders to put the nails in his hands and put the nails in his feet. And Peter is speaking to this group of men and women. And then he says this, he says, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That just simply means Messiah. Christ means Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Well, this God of ours is so full of mercy to the very ones that crucified him. And Peter replies, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a God that's full of mercy? I mean, how about just wipe them out? Where are those 3,000? Let them stand before me. I'm going to wipe them out because they nailed me to the cross. Let me see them face to face. Instead, he displays hands that are full of scars and feet that are full of scars, a side that has been pierced with a sword. And he says, Father, forgive them. He's still saying it. Father, forgive them. He said it from the cross. Father, forgive them. He said it that day, that day that Peter was saying, you know, to them, you are guilty of this man's blood. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. And he's saying it today, Father, forgive them. 2,000 years later, he's saying it, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And you know what? He will. And he does. And he has. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. The next thing I see in this passage of Scripture, the religious leaders, when they reject, when they rejected Jesus, when you reject life, by default, you choose death. And that was true then, and that's true today. When we reject the words of Jesus, now remember what he said about his word? He says that my words are life. Remember what John said? That in him was life, and he was the light for all men. So that when we reject his word, and it can be anything. When you reject his word in relationships, in marriage, in uh, adultery, in fornication, in bitterness, in anger, in drunkenness, in being you know, consumed and controlled by sin, Paul says to the, uh, to the Romans, he says, that whosoever you submit your body to serve, that will be your master. If you're going to submit your body to sin, then sin will be your master. But when you reject life, you choose by default, you choose death. 
Now listen to this in John chapter 18. It says, but you have a custom. This is Pilate speaking to the people. That I should release someone to you at Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried out saying, not this man, but Barnabas. Now Barnabas was a robber. We also find out that he was a murderer as well. In Acts chapter 3 It says Peter is saying again to the same crowd of people, speaking to them about their sin. He says, you handed him, you the people handed him, Jesus, over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate. When Pilate was willing to give him up and give him back, you disowned him. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him up from the dead. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. The religious leaders couldn't see it. And some of the men and women couldn't see it during their day. There's a scripture and a story that Jesus tells. It's about one of his healings, and I'll close with this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought a blind man and a beggar and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. And they look like trees walking around. I want you to think about this for a second because it's an interesting story. I see people and they look like trees walking around. How do you see people today? How do you see people? Do you see them clearly? Are you able to see them clearly? Are you able to see them like God sees them? Are you able to see them as just sometimes just lost men and women trying to find their way, broken and hurting people trying to find their way, and are absolutely lost like uh, sheep without a shepherd is what the Bible says. Do you see them like that? Or do you see them as like just trees? Look like trees walking around. You know, I don't have time for them. You know, I don't have time for them. I don't have time for these sinners. I don't have time. It's going to take too much of my time because they're dirty and because they're filthy and because they got habits. They smoke and they drink and they do drugs and they're prostitutes and they're begging for money. I just see them like trees walking around. Who cares about that? But see, that wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough then, and it wasn't good enough now. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes were open, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You know, that's what we, we need restoration of sight, church. We need God to restore our sight so that we can see clearly. Because if we don't, We're just going to see people as trees walking around or as men like trees walking around. We won't see clearly, and if you don't see clearly, you won't think clearly, and you won't pray clearly, and you won't be concerned the way that God is concerned.